Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll take a look at where equity and environmental justice overlap with UMass professor Malcolm Sen, who's part of an academic movement getting more areas of study involved in the discussion and solutions for climate change. We'll also get a preview of an upcoming storytelling event with Tessa White Diamond of Diamond Farm in Wendell, whose eggs or chickens or pies you may have seen at markets across the valley. We'll hear the story of the farm, a little of the story she'll be telling at Field Notes in March, and taste some of their delicious wares. But to start, let's head out to the Northwest Berkshires, where a new art exhibit has just opened on the Williams College campus. Destiny Fillmore. I am an assistant curator at the Modern and Contemporary Department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and when I was here at the Williams College Museum of Art, I was a Mellon Curatorial Fellow. And you have curated this exhibit. Yes, yes I did, um, with the support of Kevin Murphy um, and many other colleagues here at WICMA. It's been wonderful to imagine what the iteration of the exhibition looks like for us. It's titled Emancipation, the Unfinished Project of Liberation. It is based in no small part on this sculpture that we're in front of. Can you talk about this? Oh, absolutely. So we're looking at The Freedmen by John Quincy Adams Ward, and it was made in 1863 before the conclusion of the Civil War, and it was made to sort of commemorate the Emancipation Proclamation, and we just celebrated the 160th anniversary of that document. And it's a bronze sculpture of a man who's sitting on a stump, and he's sort of leaning his weight on his left leg, and around his left wrist is a shackle. This is a person who we're understanding to be a freed person, someone who is either emancipating themselves or perhaps was emancipated. And this is a really special copy actually that's coming from the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art. And it's special because there's a key that makes one of the shackles operable. And wow. We think it's one of the only copies um, of the bronze edition of the sculpture to have an operable key. And the key's emblazoned with something important too, right? Yes, there's a little inscription that's commemorating the 54th Regiment of Massachusetts Volunteers, which is an all-black regiment of soldiers that fought for the Union side during the Civil War. And there's a lot of really wonderful local history connected to this group of people. Two of the enlistees were actually from Williamstown, but about 82 or so total came from the Berkshires. Why have modern artists of color do pieces in response to this piece. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the, the central thesis of the exhibition when Maggie Adler, who is the curator of paintings, sculptures, drawings, and prints at the Eamon Carter Museum of Art, um, <laughs> and, and uh, Marita Pohl, Dr. Marita Pohl, who's the chief curator and director of the Newcomb Museum at Tulane University, they sort of came together after Maggie herself encountered this piece at the Eamon Carter. She shared a story a bit earlier where there was the celebration for a big anniversary at the museum where they invited anyone but a curator to create a label for an object in the collection. And there was someone who uh, started his career at the Eamon Carter at 19 years old and stayed there for 42 years. He started as a janitor, worked his way <laughs> Back to that story soon because there is an interactive exhibit that's just started. Every half hour. You were told to expect the jump and the fact that you made this exhibit and you jumped made me so happy I can't tell you. Every, every half hour on the half hour, you hear that noise here at the Williams College Museum of Art. Destiny, tell us what, what we're looking at right now. So we were watching um, a, a kinetic sculpture activate. It was created by the artist Jeffrey Maris. Um, and it is a plaster mold of his head that is placed on top of this 
table that has a serrated top and a mechanical component, I think that was originally made using an AC motor, uh -huh. uh, operates and it drags his head back and forth. And if you look sort of at the base of his neck, there is this collection of plaster dust. And, and so the work is kind of slowly but surely grading itself into a fine dust. And eventually, um, throughout the run of the exhibition, actually, we'll be collecting this plaster to send to Jeffrey so that he can recycle it into the production of his works on paper. And you can see three of those to our left right here. It reminds me of the piece I Can't Help Myself, the mm -hmm. one of the robot that's leaking fluid and trying to clean it oh, up at yeah. the same time. Oh my goodness. That one <laughs> is so powerful and sad. And there is a sadness with this. Well, and, oh, and okay. like it stopped running. And that's like perhaps the, the, the tail end of this and, and like looking at this and going like, oh, wait, well, eventually that head's going to be gone. Yeah. We're, we're curious to see just how far down it'll go, actually. Um, this is a, a new plaster mold for our venue of the exhibition, and so I'm, I'm curious to see if we'll get to his ears, but mm. it might be possible. Our run's pretty long. We'll be going till July 14th. So. I was going to say, like, you've got until July to see how far this goes. And it does that every half an hour. Every so, half yeah. an hour, and, and it's really, um, I think, harrowing to listen. I, I said earlier um, that it reminds me of the pirate song from Pirates of the Caribbean. Like that yo-ho, it's like it's a very deep mournful sound. Which is interesting when I think of Jeffrey because he is a Caribbean person. He was born in Haiti and grew up in the Bahamas um, and his work is really trying to think about the, the ongoing pressures and degradation um, uh, of people's bodies due to systems of oppression, especially those that are really prevalent and, and labor, uh, especially manual labor-based practices and professions. And so we're seeing this sort of slow but sure disintegration uh, of a representation of, of him, uh, of a person, that's just a part of being a cog in a machine. And so it's um, a little morbid, but, but also very hopeful when we consider that the plaster that comes from this grading is recycled into a work that's about um, hope and, and thinking about our larger place in a cosmological existence. Um, and so the, the three works on paper, which you could maybe consider drawings because he's using um, the boot uh, that he's wearing to step in and make imprints along the composition. He's rubbing the plaster into this roofing paper. Um, and, and when you look at them, they look like it could be an image of a galaxy or it could be an aerial image of an ocean. They're incredibly involved and beautiful, I think. And so it's it's wonderful that something that is also um, aesthetically appealing, though a little scary, um, can, can turn into something else that, that is meant to also be beautiful and to have this kind of ethereal essence to it. I'm assuming that's his torso also? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's two two sections of this that are robotic and, and grading sections of the body down mm -hmm. to be used for, for other things. It's I imagine that one's louder. No, actually. So, yes, it was louder, but we put uh, some... <laughs> <laughs> we put uh, uh, Brian Repetto, who's the genius chief preparator here, offered the, the opportunity to put uh, some plywood boards on the backing so that the grating um, isn't as loud. So it's actually a little quiet, uh -huh. which makes it seem just like a high-functioning machine. It's like, okay, this is like some old Chevy, and this is a Tesla that you kind of <laughs> can't hear. Uh, but, the, but they're still doing the same thing. They're still both a part of this, this system. When should we be prepared for that jump scare? That one happens uh, on, the, on the whole hour. So at, okay. um, uh, <laughs> you got time. You got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although it makes sense, like your head's sometimes louder than your body is. Yeah. It's so true. <laughs> I know the noises in my head are. But that reminds me actually of something that Marita Poole said, which is that um, it's interesting because even when we're dealing or, or sort of experiencing um, 
or being a witness to like acts of racial violence, for instance, sometimes because they happen so habitually or repetitively, we kind of drown them out and then they become a part of the ambient noise of, of life or living in a society like ours. But also sometimes they don't. Sometimes you are shocked uh, every single time that you see something like this. And so it's amazing to me how um, diaphanous, uh, expansive Jeffrey's work is, incidentally or not. And, and it, it really is, I think, one of my favorite works in the show because mm. it, it sparks so many conversations and it's always um, jarring <laughs> to, to hear the big crank going on, <laughs> but it's good. We're with Destiny Fillmore at the Williams College Museum of Art in the new exhibit, Emancipation, taking a look at some of the artworks that are up celebrating the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. What else should we go look at? Um, let's look at... Sadie Barnett's installation over here, but on the way, uh, I'll just say a little bit about Letitia Huckabee's um, series that we're seeing on our left, which was uh, titled A Tale of Two Greenwoods, and it was a project that she created where she sort of ruminated on her own family history, her father's from Greenwood, Mississippi, and also the um, uh, historic neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was the site of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And so Greenwood, Mississippi is, is what folks might call a freedman town. Uh, it was a place where uh, a black community sort of uh, created itself and dwelled. Um, and the same could be said for Greenwood, Oklahoma and, and Tulsa. But unfortunately what we see on the right is sort of the remnants of this neighborhood. It's, it's um, unoccupied, the grass is dying, um, the stairs that we see, they're sort of disintegrating and we're, we're, we're being able to see this um, comparison between Greenwood, Mississippi where you have these bright colored houses with the porch lights on and remnants of life and, and evidence of life. And then sort of on the ends, we see these portraits. Um, they're the family photos of Letitia as a baby. So Letitia's work is interesting because it's so deeply engaged with personal histories and legacies and the way that they branch out. Um, and the series across the, across the way in the gallery is another really great example of that. This is a, a body of work with a few titles, but it's interesting to think about it as a collective representation of the descendants of the enslaved people who were trafficked on the Clotilda, which was a, a slave ship which illegally transported Africans to Africatown, which is a small town outside of Mobile, Alabama. Um, and it happened, um, and I believe the late uh, or the early 1860s, um, and this is after the international slave trade had been abolished. And this group of people were brought here; they were enslaved, um, and then just a few years later, emancipated due to the end of the Civil War. And the descendants still dwell in Africa town, and they have the really unique experience and gift of uh, having ancestors who recollected their experience in Africa. So they had these sort of cultural understandings and memories that many people um, of African descent, especially um, uh, the descendants of enslaved folks in America, don't have access to. Unless you're like Gulagachi. Exactly, <laughs> unless you're Gulagachi, or you're from Sapelo Islands, or you're from here in Africa town. They're, they're these really incredible communities that are just containers for so much. And so the silhouettes that we're seeing are of the people who are descended from Kaja Lewis, who perhaps is a name folks recognize from Zorana Hurston's Barakun, which is a book that was 
sort of created in the late 1920s um, and only published in 2018 when the story of Africa Town was corroborated by the um, discovery of the actual ship that transported their ancestors, which had been sunken into the river. So super wonderful work that, that has so many resonances with um, sort of contemporary struggles for justice and remembrance. And I love looking at these. And also it's an important note that um, Letitia Huckabee is deeply engaged with textiles and the photos and that we see on the wall with the embroidery hoops and also the works here with the silhouettes, they're all printed onto textiles. And in this body of work, the um, descendants who are pictured actually chose the, the textiles that they get to be represented on. So it's such a cool, cool yeah. work, I think. And the silhouettes, I mean, they look like they're alive. Yes. They, 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 the shadows look like these people are here mm -hmm. behind these fabrics. It's yeah. really amazing. They're just right behind the screen. They're so animated. You've got these little girls with barrettes in their hair, and, and, and there's just all of these tender images. And to the far left, someone's holding a, an earring with the continent of Africa on it. And so it's, it's so wonderful to remember that these folks are alive and well. The descendants of these enslaved people are alive and well. And they're fighting for um, justice and, and freedom. And they also are fighting against ecological terrorism in a way. Um, many people in this community have illnesses that are directly um, connected to the sort of ecological environment that they're existing in, which I believe is also connected to the same family who is responsible for the transportation of their ancestors is also responsible for the environmental degradation that is making them ill. So oh. there's this like ongoing wrong that is happening that is being attended to now. Why stop at one, <laughs> one terrible thing when Maybe. you can just make a legacy of terrible things and keep doubling down? Why admit that you're wrong and fix it? And, and you know that this community, um, and this is discussed, I believe, in the document Descendants, which is about them, um, that, that's available on Netflix, um, where they talk a bit about the fact that they didn't take their story to the public because they thought folks wouldn't believe them until they had proof of the ship. And then they had proof of the ship, and I think also found out later that the family knew where the ship was the whole time. Mm. So lots of wrong being done, but Letitia's using her work as an artist and her background as a photojournalist to really give them space um, within exhibitions like this, which is so wonderful, I think. I think it might be a minute late like, if we wanted to run over. Let's go. Do you want to try to catch it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude, come on. <laughs> Performance anxiety. It's okay, Torso. My body also doesn't do things I want it to. <laughs> okay. So it's mercifully much quieter. Much, much quieter. <laughs> you don't have to have a jump scare. <laughs> <for this. laughs> we thought it would be a bit too much to, to, yeah, to yeah. ask the visitors to be scared not once but twice in a visit. <laughs> Experiencing artist Jeffrey Metris's disintegrating torso with Williams College Museum of Art curator Destiny Fillmore as part of the new exhibit Emancipation on display now. But you can check out video of the head being graded down on the NEPM Facebook page. Tomorrow on the show, we'll explore more of this incredible new exhibit and hear about the interesting and controversial ways Abraham Lincoln and the Black Panthers are part of the exhibit. First, however, we'll try not to crack too many yolks about putting all our eggs in one basket when we talk with Tessa White Diamond from the local legends of poultry, Wendell's Diamond Farm. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM.
Time for Local Hero Spotlight with Tessa White Diamond from Diamond Farm in Wendell and Phil Corman from CESA, the Local Hero folks. First question, what came first, the turkey or the eggs? Very debatable. I'm not going to get involved in that. What about a Diamond Farm? What came first? Because when I get Diamond Farm products, I'll be at my local supermarket, and there's a, a cardboard carton of Diamond Farm dozen eggs right there. Yeah, it's mostly eggs unless I splurge and I get a pie. But pies are another thing that my family is a big fan of from Diamond Farm. So mm-hmm. it's a business model. What came first, the turkeys or the eggs? The chickens. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. my grandparents started with the chickens years ago. So even before turkeys? Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, the turkeys we didn't start doing until 1989. So it was the chickens It first. was the chickens, uh-huh. yep. My grandparents started the farm back in 1936 mm. and uh, raised their dozen kids along with the chickens. They had to all they all grew up <laughs> yeah. in the egg carton. Like. <laughs> yes, that's exactly yes. what it was. <laughs> it's much easier to make the rooms that way. <laughs> yeah. And no one can complain that their room is bigger than the others. Yeah. Yes, they did, but we won't get into that. <laughs> and I know your mom, Annie mm-hmm. Diamond, yep. uh, who's one of those dozen. Mm-hmm. How many um, of the original dozen kids are still involved in the farm? Your mom is still involved yep, in the farm. Yep, so my mom, Anne, she's still working the farm. My uncle Peter, he's one of the owners. He's semi-retired. And then my aunt Faith, she's fully retired for the most part, um, but she's still one of the owners. Mm-hmm. But then I do have uh, my aunt Judy, my aunt Mary. They help quite a bit. People can't quite get away, even if they try. <laughs> and you tried. I did try, yes. <laughs> you, well, you succeeded for a good couple of years before mm-hmm. coming back. Right. I went off to college, uh, studied social work for a bit, did not think farming is, you know, was going to be where I, where I ended up. But after about a dozen years, that's where I came back, where I wanted to do. That dozen keeps coming it up. It keeps like coming up. Can't get for, away from perfect it. Perfect for eggs. <laughs> I don't want to divulge your entire story because you're going to divulge your entire story as part of CISA's storytelling event happening on Sunday, March 10th, Field mm-hmm. Notes at the Academy of Music. But give us a, a little taste of uh, where you left to and why. what brought you back. Sure, yeah. So my story, pretty much, and, and what I'll be telling at Field Notes is about me growing up on the farm, how I did help, did not think it would be my my gig, and did social work for many years, but ultimately came back. And there was, you're always wondering, like, is this really where I'm supposed to be, no matter what you're doing? And there was this moment that I'll talk about that it was kind of like this light bulb, like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. I love that you're going to be talking a little bit about ambivalence and doubt mm-hmm. because, well, I sort of live with that every day. <laughs> I think almost everybody does. I feel like everyone does. Yeah. But, to, you know, to know that we're walking through our days and that we always have some doubt whether we're really good at that or not, and sometimes we're impassioned and sometimes we're not, is really a, kind of an everyday story of everyday life. We haven't even said where your farm is, so can you share that? Sure, yeah. My farm is in Wendell, Mass., about 15 minutes from Greenfield. It's about five minutes off Route 2. So we're definitely off the beaten path, but once you get there, we have a full farm store that we sell all of our our meats that we raise. We raise chickens for eggs, chickens for uh, meat. We have turkeys, and we have beef cows, and then we have a commercial kitchen where you can buy a whole slew of meals that we make right there, and you can see us cooking while you're buying your foods. So, Tessa, out of the four of us, you're the only person who's been with all the other storytellers. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Can you just give us a little uh, sense of the diversity of folks and ways of life and walks of life that people are coming forth from to tell their stories? Sure. Yeah. We've only met once, but it was very interesting to meet with, gosh, I think it's 10 of us who will be telling quite a variety of stories. There's farmers, you know, other farmers like me, but then there are people who have had more of an academic approach to farming. And there's going to be, I think, two other languages, uh, you know, stories being told in a couple different languages. So it's going to be a pretty interesting event, a quite vast array of, of stories from different backgrounds. And the event is called Field Notes. It's put on by CISA. Uh, it'll be at the Academy of Music on Sunday, March 10th. And I'm emceeing. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> you asked me, Bill. Oh, right, 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 right. Weeks ago, I think. Yeah. Um, Months ago. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Field Notes is such a, a cool version of like the modern storytelling on stage movement. Why is it really important to get up on stage and make sure that people see a wide array of what farming actually looks like? I love that question. Um, first, I want to say, like, I feel like CISA's whole mission is to bridge that gap between people who are growing our food and preparing our food, delivering our food, and all of us who need to eat the food. And when we get to see these people on stage, first of all, it's like, oh, maybe I know that person, maybe I don't, but it's a person who has a story to tell, and they are the ones telling the story. No one else is telling their story. And I also think that we've always tried to give more power back to farmers that's been taken away since industrialization and before. And to have our farmers be center stage is kind of a beautiful thing. My hope is that there are people in the audience who both may see that they could take this path and or that they may have a story to tell about food, preparing it, cooking it, growing it. What about you, Tessa White Diamond, yeah. who's going to be one of the storytellers at Field Notes? What does this mean to you? Well, I love this event, period, and I'm very honored to be part of it. When they accepted my story, I was very, very excited. And I just think it's a great opportunity for people to have a face to a name. You may have seen diamond eggs in the grocery store or our turkey pot pies, but don't really know much about us. So this is a chance for, you know, me and other farmers and other people in the farming community to get up, tell our story, and you get to see a little bit about what it takes to actually put that food on your table. I think a lot of people during the pandemic realized the uh, supply chain issues inherent in the food system that we live in. And the price of eggs went off the charts, out of control, six ways from Sunday. Diamond Farm, consistently had eggs available and were affordable in local grocery stores. Can you tell us a little bit about what the cost is of putting a dozen eggs into a grocery store? Well, for us, we try to keep our prices as consistent as possible. We really don't like our prices to fluctuate. Uh, however, it is a lot of work to put those eggs on your table. Quite a few years ago, I think it was back in 2017, some regulations changed where we had our chickens in cages and some regulations happened that we had to go cage-free. So we did that. We actually were granted the FSIG, uh, Food Security Infrastructure Grant, which was wonderful that we were able to change our whole system and it really helped. Uh, however, to get your eggs from the chicken, from the nest. We do everything by hand. So we go in there three times a day. We collect those eggs by hand, process them by hand, pack them by hand, and then we deliver them ourselves. We don't have any middleman. It's all us. You know, it's, it's important for us that we're involved in pretty much every single aspect of our product, no matter the eggs, the chickens, the turkeys, the cows, except one caveat with the cows. We do send our cows to Adams Farm in, in Athol because they're licensed to process. But you're processing all the birds. birds all, on your farm. Oh, yes. Very important. That's, all of our birds are done on site. That's hard. <laughs> yes, very hard. So once they're, they're a day old... 
to the very last day, everything is done on our farm. And I think what often consumers don't realize is for a small farmer, when costs go up for everything, they're going up for the farmer too. So fuel and all the inputs and the cardboard cartons and all of that, and even you know labor has gone up for all the farms. We're glad about that as long as farms can continue their sustainability financially. And so here you have a, a local farm that understands that people in the community have limited resources, and so they actually feel the pain of the people they sell to also, unlike national chains that will just gouge whenever they can. So I have this romantic notion, maybe you'll dispel it, that really what Diamond Farm is, is a farm that's not just feeding its family like we did 100 years ago, where you were raising everything you could and feeding your own family, but you're actually now this outlet to feed other families, but everything is still mostly grown on the farm, and you do some wholesale too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep, so we sell on the farm in our farm store, but we also do, Monty, as you mentioned, and Calice, we sell to other places. We sell to Atkins and Amherst, uh, Millstone and Sunderland, River Valley. We do Quabbin Harvest and Orange. So there's a, a variety of different places that we sell to. So we try as much as possible to have our food be in other places because we know not everybody can make it to our cute little store in Wendell. Shout out to Food City, Turner's Falls. Oh, yeah, Food where City. I got the <laughs> farm eggs all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> Go down to the big city. Oh, my goodness. I love it. We're talking with Tess White Diamond from Diamond Farm and Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero folks. I keep wanting to make Steven Universe jokes and I'm holding it back. <laughs> Which one? Just because there's so many diamonds. Oh, she's, yes. Oh, she's yeah. Tessa White Diamond. Oh, that's and, right. Like, are there pink and blue and yellow diamonds on the farm? <laughs> Amethyst and pearl. <laughs> Are the crystal gems? There are not. You do have a commercial kitchen. We and do. you did bring some goodies I with you. Did. I did. Yes. What do we have here? So I brought some almond crescent cookies that are gluten-free. Wow, nice. Perfect with tea and coffee. I see you got some coffee. Oh, almost out. It is coffee. Okay. Oh. Yeah, we need to get a refill with this. Can I have 30 seconds yeah. to go get? If you get me a refill. <laughs> I'll get you a refill. <laughs> Meanwhile, now we can talk about her behind your back. So I also have chicken brown rice soup. This is going to be a new wholesale product that we're going to be selling at different stores. We sell it, of course, at our farm store. Yeah, the soup is this delicious. This is great. This is perfect for days like this because mm. it's still soup weather. Now Phil's breaking into the gluten-free, what is it, almond? Almond cookies. Mm -hmm. So you have a commercial kitchen. How long has it been open? How long have you been doing the, the, the catering end of this? So it actually was an offshoot of the turkeys. So when we started the turkeys back in 1989, we started with just 500. Now we do up to 5,000 a year. And there was a point where there was a surplus of turkey. And so it was after Thanksgiving and we had too many turkeys. What do you do with turkeys? And I believe it was actually my Aunt Faith, I think it might have been her original idea, along with my mom, that they decided to do pot pies. And then so from there, they kind of fashioned what the pot pie recipe would be, you know, the, the crust and all of that. And then maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was a friend of my aunt, Faith, who said, you know, well, why not have her come? I think it was at Thanksgiving time, make some muffins and whatnot for the crew. And then it just expanded from there to, okay, let's have a little farm store. Let's have some display coolers. It was self-serve at that point. And then it just got to be a little too busy. So then we had it fully staffed. So now we're open on Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. People can come in and, and buy whatever they want. These cookies are incredible. <laughs> With the coffee mm -hmm. that Khalees went to go get. Mwah. Delicious. I will get to there. You have to have, <laughs> you have, to have dinner before you can have dinner. Yeah, I already had the soup. Now, you are the third generation mm -hmm. of this diamond farm, and you 
will be telling a story about what brought you back to the farm after growing up on the farm and leaving the farm. Is there a fourth generation on the horizon that we see? Not quite yet. Uh huh. But what I do have to say is, you know, 10 years ago, I would not have said that I'd be back on the farm. Mm-hmm. So who knows what's, you know, five, 10 years down the road, 15 years. We really don't know what's going to happen. It's a lot of my cousins. They have kids and they love coming around to the farm. So we will see if any one of them decides that it's going to be their thing. Are you the planting any seeds? Are you planting <laughs> oh, any yeah, seeds they always with any love of your to. nephews and nieces or Laying cousins? Well, lots of my cousins, when they come around, they like to you know, be on the tractor. They like to always check the cows, the chickens, the turkeys. So they really get a kick out of it. They're still very young. They're in elementary school and younger. So <laughs> nope. let's give them a little bit of time. <laughs> yeah, let them graduate from middle school. Yeah. <laughs> When did beef enter the picture? Because I always think of you as poultry. That was in the 90s. What happened in the 90s to make all of these big <laughs> changes? It seems like a lot that's, of things happened. No, that's right a great question. Then. So at that point, uh, the farm was supporting four households. So that's why the farm in 1989 got into raising turkeys. And then from there, the beef came along. And then at one point, we um, we got a sawmill. And so now we have a sawmill. We do our own lumber. Oh, wow. And that was, yeah, so we do quite a bit. <laughs> and I think what people don't always realize is how many changes farms go through as they try to adapt their business to meet new consumer demand, need meet new market demands. And so Diamond Farm has gone through many transformations over the years. Mm -hmm. We have diversified quite a bit, and I really don't want to diversify much more because we have our hands in a lot of different pots. But what I love about what we've done is we're not in one market. So if one market, you know, let's say the chickens don't do well one year, that's not going to completely break us. It's going to hurt us, but we have these other things to fall back on. So that's one thing that my family has you know, done really good over the years. Tessa White Diamond is one of the storytellers at CESA's storytelling event, Field Notes, happening Sunday, March 10th at the Academy of Music in Northampton. And is the third generation farmer behind Diamond Farm in Wendell. And you can learn more about CESA's storytelling event and all of the farmers that CESA, the local hero folks, work with alongside Phil Corman from CESA. Uh, at buylocalfood.org. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. Up next, Professor Malcolm Sen, Director of the Environmental Humanities Specialization at UMass Amherst, on how the environment and humanities genuinely do work together. And we'll hear about bringing more academic disciplines into the discussions surrounding climate change and how the keynote Black History Month speaker, Catherine Coleman Flowers, is a great example of those intersections they seek to encourage. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. This Thursday, the College of Humanities and Fine Arts will host a keynote address from Catherine Coleman Flowers in the Student Union Ballroom. The keynote address hosted by the College of Humanities and Fine Arts will support, with support from many campus partners, is at 530 and is the culminating event of the college's Black History Month celebrations. It's free and open to the public. Professor Malcolm Sen, director of the hum Environmental Humanities Specialization at UMass Amherst, joins us now. Thank you for joining us to talk about this. Wonderful to be here, thank you. Where did your department come from? Because this is the first time that I've heard about environmental humanities like 
specialization or at, like the idea of like blending those things, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. But I don't think a, a whole lot of people have have heard about this specialization. Can you speak on it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, you know, this is a very old discipline, and in and in other ways, it is it's a very new one. Um, I work in the English department. Um, but the kind of work I do really acknowledges the very great role the humanities has had in relation to thinking about, living in, and, you know, uh, shepherding environmental issues, right? So I think we have an inherited language where we think about environmental problems and climate problems, and we think about them, I suppose, very much as, you know, scientific issues and political issues and economic issues with scientific, economic and political solutions. But the climate issue really and environmental issues in general are very much human, social and cultural issues. So really, you know, even if you were to look at what we call climate science with a capital S now, if you look at its origins, you actually have a discipline called environmental, sorry, natural philosophy. Right. It was very much a part of, um, I suppose, a very multidisciplinary approach to the environment. Now, what has happened today is with our current university structures, we have siloed off disciplines one from the other. So we have on the one hand, you know, a culture of avoidance. I don't deal with climate change issues. I don't deal with the environmental issues. <laughs> you could be a politician and say I'm not a scientist over and over again and then just pretend it's going to go away. Yes. <laughs> Yes, very true. Um, or you have a culture of guilt where I am getting really anxious because I'm thinking about the, you know, climate change all the time, let's say. But then also we have a climate of solutionism, right? And oftentimes that solutionism is scientific and techno fixes or what have you, which is all great. I think we need those. But we also actually have entire histories and cultures um, of people living in harmony and within ecological limits. And I think the time right now is to acknowledge not only that history, but actually also acknowledge alternative sciences. So in UMass Amherst, for example, we have a new center, Center for Braiding Indigenous Knowledges, uh, run by uh, Professor Sonia Atelay, which is really treating indigenous knowledge as a form of climate and environmental sciences, right? So environmental humanities is a very interdisciplinary kind of field. Um, I teach literature, but I teach it through the lens of climate and environmental issues. We're speaking with Professor Malcolm Sen from UMass, who is going to host the keynote speaker on Thursday as part of the Black History Month uh, celebration at UMass Amherst with Catherine Coleman Flowers, who we'll get to talking about in a little bit and her right. incredible work. Uh, when you're talking, when we're talking about the history and legacy of the humanities and the environmental movement, I have just listened to a podcast from a few years ago put out by the Washington Post called Moonrise, where they talked about mm -hmm. how science fiction and imagining what space could be like really inspired scientists to say, hey, Let's try to go to the moon. There's all sorts of other political ramifications that are involved with that, militarism and the Cold War, etc. But what the uh, host of this podcast said was that in some ways, the transcendentalists, the writers, Thoreau and Emerson, all of these people opened up the woods to mm -hmm. people of especially of this continent that are not indigenous, I guess, colonizers. The idea that instead of the woods being someplace that you'd never want to go and why would you expose yourself to it, to no, get out there in the woods and appreciate it more. So 
in as at least as far as the U.S. Uh, Americans from the kind of white perspective come from, d- is that where the humanities and environmentalism, is that one of the first instances of it in this country? Well, I think what you're pointing to has a very long history and oftentimes actually it is linked with kind of oftentimes colonial experiences, mm-hmm. right? So Thoreau's writings or, or the transcendentalist writings actually also have a given, which is access to indigenous land in the first place. Right. Mm. Um, and oftentimes what you have in these narratives, the British romantics like Wordsworth would be another good example. What you actually have is, you know, grand appreciation of nature um, or even the idea of nature as a form of escape. But nature, of course, is not a destination. It is all around us and we are very much a part of it. And there are some dangers in actually valorizing nature in, in, in the way that, let's say, somebody like Thoreau might have done. Mm. Um, you know, increasingly we are noticing that really the history of colonialism is essentially a history of great environmental meddling. Uh, <laughs> all across the world, right? So you have radical transformations in indigenous food systems. You have radical transformations in the way people are able to engage or access their own land. Um, And you actually have a massive migration of species too, um, and, um, you know, diseases as well, which uh, Coleman Flowers talks about a little bit too. Um, And so we have to kind of rethink, actually, the very language we have inherited in thinking about nature and thinking about climate um, and actually have a self-corrective kind of, you know, guiding us towards a really holistic understanding of the climate crisis. Now, really, any meaningful climate action really addresses a whole host of social, environmental, political, racial, gendered, food system injustices, right? And this is why somebody like Katrin Coleman Flowers is such a beacon of hope, especially for for a younger generation of scholars. Um, Because really, and this is what Naomi Klein said, you know, uh, the journalist, uh, basically you can't really address the climate crisis without addressing basic questions of justice. And right there and then, you actually know that perhaps, you know, a climate scientist will be able to fill one particular part of the jigsaw puzzle, but you will need a humanist or a social scientist or a storyteller or perhaps even an artist to dream of an alternative. And that, I think, is becoming increasingly difficult as sustainability becomes trademarked as a commodity to buy. Wow. That is, yeah. But it's inspirational to me a little bit. I mean, I want to hear the poems and songs and writings that are going to inspire me and other people of my generation and the younger generations to fix this mess that we've created for ourselves. And and to that end, what are some of the things, like this is a collaborative initiative across campus, like like encouraging multi-disciplines and like multiple areas of study Mm -hmm. to collaborate together to look at these problems. What are some of the things that have arisen from those collaborations on campus? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Environmental humanities is very much based in, in, the, in the School of Humanities and Fine Arts, but 
in and of itself, it is engaging widely across uh, the university. So I work very closely in a group called the Sustainability Strategy Working Group. And I work closely with Rob DeConto, who is an IPCC lead author uh, of these, you know, horrendous reports that we yeah. that we get from Those the IPCC always every year. whenever they publish anything. <laughs> I work. <laughs> yeah. It's just truth. It's sad. But That's yeah, I, I call it the International Dystopian Society. You know? <laughs> um, uh, I work very closely with Tad Miller, who works in public policy. And basically what we are trying to build with support from pretty much every school on campus is to actually be able to make even our education climate resilient so that we are able to teach all incoming students that to think about climate change and to try and address those issues, you kind of need a very holistic picture. And then you can become your scientists and then you can become a humanist. But really, the question is not amenable to disciplinary silos. And I think the university is increasingly recognizing that as well. We're speaking with Professor Malcolm Sen, who's the director of the Environmental Humanities Specialization at UMass Amherst, who will be hosting a conversation this Thursday at 5.30 at the UMass Student Ballroom that's free and open to the public with Catherine Coleman Flowers, who's the keynote speaker as part of the culmination of their Black History Month celebrations. Let's take a quick break right here, and then we'll come back and we'll hear more about Catherine Coleman Flowers and more from Malcolm Sen. Sounds good. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're here with Professor Malcolm Sen from UMass, who is the Director of Environmental Humanities Specialization at UMass Amherst, and we'll be in conversation with Catherine Coleman Flowers this Thursday on campus at UMass at 5.30. She is internationally recognized environmentalist, and she has a a book that you have with you, Mm -hmm. Professor Sen, called Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. Uh, tell she us. She got one of those genius grants that we're not a call, allowed to call genius grants. Yeah, we had Kelly Light on from uh, Kelly East, Link. Kelly Link on last week from. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, that's why I don't get a genius grant. Uh, <laughs> who was also a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. She and Catherine Coleman Flowers also the vice chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Tell us about uh, what the nature of your conversation will be about this Thursday. Well, I just find people like Katrin Coleman Flowers and and other kind of environmental activists um, so inspirational because really they are able to couple things that have been deliberately sometimes decoupled, right? So I think her book and her life's work uh, really is an astonishing revelation of how five things I would say are deeply connected. Rural life, racialization, poverty, public health, and climate change. And so she notes that Lowndes County uh, in Alabama is almost like the ground zero of an environmental justice movement. And why is that? Because it is one of the most neglected parts of the country. The poverty rate is majority kind of black counties is really, really high. It's double the national average. Cell phone service is a luxury, but what really stands out is actually so is sewage treatment. So like most states, Alabama requires sanitary sewage disposal. But outside of a handful of small towns, sewage treatment is not provided for many people. 
private systems are sometimes used, septic systems, which oftentimes fail. So 40% of Lowndes County have really inadequate septic systems. What, in essence, you know, that translates to is basically you don't have the basic right to flush and forget. Mm. You have a pipe sticking out from the back of your house and really pouring raw sewage onto your land or your backyard. <laughs> now, that actually is an infrastructural problem. It is a health problem. And it is also really uh, a, a problem of criminal criminalizing poverty. Because if you can't afford to have a sewage system, you basically get criminalized. So all environmental problems, a bit like the climate issue, is a nested phenomena. And once you begin to address one thing, you actually realize here are a host of things that we need to um, kind of address. Um, and this is what you know her, her work has been. Um, Flint, Michigan, for example, came to national attention because the infrastructure failed. But of course, in Lowndes, there is no infrastructure. So how do you actually become you know, a story when really there is no infrastructure of a failing kind of story, really. So you're really speaking about a people who are being treated as disposable, as leftovers of democracy in this kind of great, you know, project, right? So she brings attention to this particular county and raises it not only to the national level, but actually even to the United Nations international level. Um, and I think that is striking um, and it's inspirational. Well, it's, I feel like it's telling also when bills and uh, mov movements to increase areas of infrastructure are brought up, people always assume that it's like it's roads, but there's so much more to the nature of infrastructure, including where your waste goes, including where your water comes from, like including what you actually have access to that has been undermined over decades and decades of misuse and underutilage that I think she brings to light and is just, it's wonderful. <laughs> what? Go ahead. What, I, what I found really fascinating too was that, you know, there is also a real kind of place-based issue. The same soil that was responsible for the cotton plantations, right, uh, the clay-based kind of soil which would actually hold water rather than let it seep through has become the reason why septic tanks are failing even if you have them. Mm. Um, and what is happening is this small county is connected to the climate crisis because as waters are rising, so is the water table in Lowndes County and so is the sewage spewing out of people's backyards. Really, the climate question really shows us how the Arctic is in conversation with the tropics. Mm. We're speaking with Professor Malcolm Sen from UMass, who's the director of the Environmental Humanities Specialization there, who will be in conversation with the woman who we keep referencing about her book, Waste, Catherine Coleman Flowers. That conversation will happen at 5.30 this Thursday at the Student Union Ballroom. They're asking people to sign up. And I know that you know this book and uh, a lot of the work that you do surrounds post-colonialism. I know you've written extensively about Irish literature and, and environmentalism. Does any of your work focus on what happens environmentally with marginalized communities here in Western Massachusetts? 
No, you know, and I think that is kind of increasingly becoming a point of interest for me, especially because of the students I teach. Mm -hmm. And so some of the courses I'm designing now, and, you know, Environmental Humanities has only been around for a few years in, in UMass, and we're hoping to build this program. And one of my goals would be to actually engage uh, students in kind of research in in the local area. Now, there is work being done, uh, let's say, by a history professor in Springfield, right, on very specific environmental concerns. Um, And I hope to kind of bring that that within the fold here as well. Um, What would, for example, you know, um, Massachusetts look like, you know, 100 years from now. That is another project maybe perhaps for an artist to kind of think about. Mm. Uh, What does Walden Pond look like now? That might be a student project for today. Um, Yes, I think you're right to bring up this issue of the local because although we are told to worry about the state of the planet, I think the future essentially seems to be more and more local. I think the the justice narratives also similarly need to be local, which is why, again, somebody like Flowers is an excellent example. Well, those conversations always start local, right, before they, they get connected to, to larger global things. Um, in this small amount of time we have left, are there certain writers whose writing on this subject, on the issue of environment and environmental change, that you find yourself coming back to again and again, regardless of the course that you're teaching? Absolutely, yes. So the person I often go back to is this Indian author, Amitav Ghosh, who has written a whole host of novels, but actually also very specific books on climate. There's this great tiny book called The Great Derangement, which I will highly recommend everybody everybody reads. But writers, I think, are key. As Rebecca Solnit, another person I read uh, quite carefully, says the future, remember, has not been written yet. It's in the process of being writing of being written. Professor Malcolm Sen, fascinating uh, humanities specialization that you are at the head of there. I can't wait to hear more about it. And we may very well, because I think you've got a series of events yeah, coming more up. more events coming up in March. In March, so that's <laughs> exciting. But this Thursday, you will be in conversation with author and environmentalist and the vice chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Policy, Catherine Coleman Flowers at the UMass Student Ballroom. 5.30 as the culmination of their Black History Month celebration there. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we appreciate it greatly. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, Western Mass is known for its ties to abolitionism, but how much do we know about the actual black figures that lived and even freed themselves here? We chat with archivist and local historian Cliff McCarthy from the Springfield Museums, who's worked on both freedom stories of the Pioneer Valley and the early history of black lives in the Connecticut River Valley about key figures in the area you should know more about. And speaking of freedom, we'll continue our exploration of the exhibit Emancipation with curator Destiny Fillmore at Williams College Museum of Art. And we'll ask Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster a listener question about the decreasing use of the phrase, you're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Sure. I'm Monty Belmonte. (laughs) I'm Khalees Smith. Thanks to the fabulous Fab... (laughs) Fab 413 tech team. We'll talk to you tomorrow.